0: Welcome to another episode of One for the Vaults, the podcast that brings you all the dirt, gossip, and glamour from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. One for the Vaults will explore some of my favorite moments from North American and European trans history. I love history because it's my favorite kind of gossip, scandalous, sensational, and most importantly of all, not about me. Me directly, anyways. Today's episode of One from the Vaults is on a subject I've been planning to profile for a while. And then, much to my chagrin, the Toronto Star beat me to the punch. Thankfully, their profile was rather tame, and over here at OFTV Central, we prefer to take a juicier look at trans history. Our story today has many twists and turns. A rural teenage transition, a tragic car accident, two major media scandals, a media-hungry quack, and the rise of the gender identity clinic. It involves several colorful characters, and most interestingly to me, a lot of details that don't quite add up. Pinning down any solid facts in this story is enticingly difficult. Researching this episode, I relied heavily on work by Zagria, whose website, A Gender Identity Who's Who, is a constant source of guidance for the creation of OFTV. Zagria has had the longest running and by far most comprehensive trans history website for many years now, and is, frankly, a treasure to our community for this reason, and I'm sure others. Her website is linked in the show notes, and I encourage you to check it out. So, join me for the story of Canada's first sex change, Diana Boileau. Diana Boileau was born sometime in the early 1930s. Zagria suggests that she may have been born as early as 1930 based on the available information, which we'll discuss in a bit. But what we do know is that she was born in a home for unwed mothers in Winnipeg. As a baby, she was adopted by a forest ranger known only as Mr. Boileau and his wife. They lived a life you might expect of a forest ranger. No running water, no electricity, subsistence hunting and fishing. Mr. Boyleau had problems with his eyesight, and the family relocated several times in Manitoba and later in Northern Ontario while he sought out work. By the time she was a teenager, the family had moved to Fort Francis, Ontario. Fort Francis has a current population of just over 7,000. So you can imagine that back in roughly the 1940s, the paper mill town was even smaller. Tim Hortons, that staid icon of Canadiana, recently named Fort Francis one of the coldest places in Canada, and it is certainly not on my go-to winter vacation list by any means. In Fort Francis, As in many small towns today, life revolved around high school sports. I'm sure it will come as no surprise to my listeners that Diana was not impressed. According to her autobiography, it was in an effort to get out of gym class, which she referred to a bit melodramatically as torture, that she first ended up in the office of a local doctor. Dr. Harold Chalice was... According to the star, tall and burly. The British physician had recently moved from Britain to Fort Francis, Ontario with his family for reasons that remain a complete mystery to me. Here is where the first discrepancy in Diana's story appears. As I mentioned earlier, Zagria gives a date of birth for Diana as 1930. She bases this on a 1962 newspaper report that puts Diana's age at 32. According to Diana's account, she received treatment from Dr. Chalice, or Chally as his friends called him, while she was a teenager. But here's the issue. Dr. Chalice moved to Fort Francis in 1950. So, at earliest, she would have been 19 or more probably 20 years old, when she could've first seen Dr. Chalice. However, according to her account, she began medically transitioning while in high school at age 17. We'll touch on this more a little later. Diana is remembered from this time as a delicate boy. Chris Lowe, a classmate from that time, now 80 years old, recalled to the star, quote, "'Our typing teacher, Miss Arthur, "'asked her to cut her nails because they were getting caught between the keys of the typewriter. But you know, I think she led a really rough life. She didn't really fit in anywhere. What is agreed on is that Dr. Chalice, after speaking with young Diana, diagnosed her as a transsexual. But wait. The word transsexual was not in popular usage until the mid-1960s when Dr. Harry Benjamin popularized it. So, okay. Maybe he didn't diagnose her as a transsexual per se, but he basically told her, listen, you are a woman. And she was like, yeah, totally. But how did he know in a pre-Christine Jorgensen world in tiny rural Fort Francis, that transsexuals were even a thing? According to Diana's autobiography, Dr. Chalice had trained with Dr. Ernest Cowell. Does that name sound familiar to you? If you listened to our Valentine's Day episode, you might remember that we featured a trans woman named Roberta Cowell. Dr. Ernest Cowell, according to Diana Boileau, was Roberta's father. But wait, wait, wait. First of all, in researching Roberta Cowell's story, I personally never found any mention of Roberta's father being a doctor, much less a doctor who works specifically on transsexuals. The surgeon who worked with Roberta was a Dr. Harold Gillies, not a Dr. Ernest Cowell. Also, Roberta first met with Michael Dillon in late 1949 or early 1950 and it would be a few years before she would manage to get on hormones and have surgery. Now remember, 1950 is the year Dr. Chalice moved to Fort Francis. While I'm willing to believe the possibility existed for Dr. Chalice to learn of Roberta's transition from Dr. Ernest Cowell via the post, let's say... I'm skeptical about this as a probability. Either way, let's continue our story. She took up some work in the offices of Dr. Chalice and a local lawyer at this time. Eventually, Dr. Chalice decided that the best way for Diana to transition safely would be to move to a larger city. Winnipeg boasted a population that made it seem downright urban compared to tiny Fort Francis. So, according to Diana, she set out at age 17, or perhaps more like age 20, or even 21, to Winnipeg alone. Using her office experience, she applied for work as a secretary while she lived in a modest hotel. However, the police were called when she was found hanging out in the lobby and talking to people. This is another detail that I find interesting. Why would the police be called for her simply talking in the lobby? One root of speculation here is that she was perhaps suspected of doing sex work, but obviously this is impossible to corroborate. The star suggests, based on her autobiography, that the police were called because she was so young, 17. Although again, the age here is quite contested, so this explanation doesn't necessarily make sense either. When the police arrived, she told them that she was trans, and they became very confused. She writes, quote, My very distraught parents arrived at police headquarters the next day to face life-shattering news concerning their son. Never in their sheltered lives had they heard of a boy dressing as a woman. The sight of me in the complete attire of a woman made mother weep and father fume. Dr. Chalice and Diana introduced the idea of her transitioning to her parents. Diana and her parents made another try at starting a new life, this time together in Port Arthur, which is now a part of Thunder Bay. But big city life didn't sit well with her mother, who was used to a much slower pace than the town of 30,000 could offer. So back they went to Fort Francis. Diana tried again, this time moving to Calgary. Here, she started working as a stenographer and occasionally as a model at an art school. She became friends with an older divorcee, Rosemary, who was about 15 years older than Diana and worked as an elevator operator. The two of them were inseparable and moved in together. From what I can tell, they were largely platonic, both much more interested in men. But mid-century Calgary was not exactly a great place to date as a transsexual. When things started to get serious with one man, Diana felt like she had no option but to cut and run. She couldn't risk him finding out that she was trans. So, she convinced Rosemary to move with her to Edmonton. There, she took up work as an instructor in a dance school. By this time, the stress of living secretly as a transsexual in a world that didn't yet even have a word for her, was taking its toll. She got drunk with another instructor at the dance school, and the two were arrested for petty vandalism after snapping the antenna off a car. When the police discovered that she was trans, they sent her to a psychiatric hospital for evaluation. The hospital also outed her trans status to Rosemary, though thankfully Rosemary wasn't phased by the revelation. Together, they moved to Toronto, where Diana worked as a stenographer again, this time at a local law firm. Everything came to a head late one night, in June 1962. It was hot, so hot that Diana and Rosemary needed to get out. The two climbed into a car and took a drive around midnight. They might have been drinking, or could have been drinking earlier that night, who knows? as they were driving, maybe with the windows down to let in the night air rushing past, maybe talking, maybe listening to the radio. The car was sideswiped by another vehicle and slammed into the guardrail, killing Rosemary on impact. Diana escaped with barely a scratch. She called her boss at the law firm and he agreed to handle it. Knowing that it was better for the words to come from her, she disclosed her trans status. When she arrived for work on the third day after the accident, she was arrested and charged with criminal negligence causing death and dangerous driving. At first, she was placed in a women's prison, but the prison matron clocked her, and they transferred her to a men's facility at the Dawn Jail, where she stayed for four days while her boss got together money for bail. Her case? Blew up. It was just over 10 years since Christine Jorgensen had caused a worldwide media sensation, and transsexuals were still fodder for a hungry press. Woman driver, 32, found to be male, read the June 16, 1962 headline in the Globe and Mail. The trial was covered by eager journalists intent on squeezing out every detail for the public to see. Man dressed as woman lawyer, magistrate, in conflict, read another Globe and Mail headline that July. With media pressure all around them for the highly public trial, Diana and her boss, slash, lawyer, began to fight. They agreed that she should get another job. In other words, he fired her. But wait, in a 1972 interview with the CBC, Diana told another version of this story. She claimed that she had been working using a blonde wig at the time, and because her photos in the paper had been with her natural red hair, her boss had not realized it was her on trial. In this version, her boss does not become her lawyer. He never finds out that she is a transsexual, and she does not lose her job during or after the trial. She says that her boss even asked, what do you make of all this? Referring to the trial. And she demurred. It's certainly a funny anecdote. But is it really what happened? I'm not sure. Her trial was interesting. She was arraigned as both Diana Boileau and under her birth name. And she was tried separately for criminal negligence and dangerous driving. In September, she was acquitted of criminal negligence, and the headline ran, Dressed as Woman, Man Acquitted, Sobs. And in February, after a four-day trial and only ten minutes of deliberation by the all-male jury, she was found not guilty of dangerous driving. By then, perhaps, some of the glamour had worn off, as the headline read rather plainly, All-male jury acquits driver in June death. Losing her best friend, her job, and her anonymity, Diana was crushed. She began drinking to cope. She lost her job and used up all of her savings. She claims around this time that she made two unsatisfactory attempts at sex, one with a cis woman and another with a gay cis man. Her purpose in sharing this information later appears to be to bolster her claims at legitimacy as a heterosexual woman. She said later that these experiences pushed her to commit to medically transitioning. At a low point, she attempted suicide. In a rather disgusting turn of events, her suicide attempt outed her at the local hospital, who then had the police inform her landlady of her trans status. What the point of doing that was is frankly beyond me. It seems only to have been an act of cruelty. The silver lining here is that, much like Rosemary before her, the landlady took the news in stride. Not only did she not reject Diana, she made it her mission to help Diana quit drinking and get a job. Following the trial, Diana met other transsexuals for the first time in her life. She took up a friendship with someone described as a, quote, very butch lesbian, but who might perhaps have been an early trans man. Zagria found a mention of this time in the autobiography of Australian transsexual Catherine Cummings, who in 1963 was living in Toronto. Catherine refers to the woman in the story as Brenda, but it is clear from the details that she is referring to Diana. Quote, Early in 1963, Ernie drew my attention to a news item about a traffic accident in which a car driver had been killed. The driver of the other car was charged with drink driving and manslaughter and turned out to be a man who had been living and working as a woman for a number of years. Since the woman, Brenda, seemed to be having a hard time with adverse publicity, loss of employment, and the chance of a jail sentence, we decided to offer what comfort we could. Ernie wrote to Brenda's lawyer and offered our friendly support, and Brenda responded gratefully. She and her apartment mate came to visit us, and it became apparent that we had made an error of judgment. Brenda was a striking redhead with high cheekbones and an unfortunate habit of drinking herself into an aggressive frenzy every time that we met. Her friend was a very butch lesbian who found me attractive when I was Catherine and laughed to scorn the idea that I would ever return to Australia and marry. Two or three encounters with Brenda and her friend were more than enough, and when Brenda was finally bound over not to drink and drive, we thankfully let the acquaintance drop. Not exactly the most flattering picture. But you can imagine that, given all Diana had been through, she was very rightfully a mess at the time. Cleaning up her act, Diana began spending more time with other trans people. She reached out to the Erickson Educational Foundation, who you may remember from episode 5 of this podcast. She read their leaflets, Perhaps the first popular information available for trans people on aspects of transitioning. Then, in 1968, maybe with the help of the EEF's handy list of sympathetic doctors, she phoned Dr. Leo Wolman. I'll have more to say about him in a little bit, but at this point, what you need to know is that he helps Diana get on hormones through a local doctor. Around this time, she also began electrolysis for the first time. The following year, Diana and a trans friend named Bambi drive down to Yonkers, New York, where they paid a shady doctor to give them orchiectomies. In Canada at the time, as discussed in our Valentine's Day episode, mayhem law was still part of common law. Mayhem law forbid doctors in Canada and the UK from performing, quote, unnecessary surgeries that could remove a man from potentially being a soldier, in this case, an orchiectomy. Now, in theory, I think mayhem Law still applied in the U.S. at that time as well, but apparently they'd found a sympathetic surgeon to help them out. The four-day recovery was difficult, and they had to keep the maids out of the hotel room which Diana described somewhat crassly as looking, quote, more like a case of an illegal, unsuccessful abortion than a castration. The star writes, When they returned, Canadian Customs asked, Had they brought anything back? Diana whispered to her friend, No, but let's tell him we left our balls floating in the Hudson River. In August 1969, Diana went to the gynecological department of Toronto General Hospital, hoping to find someone willing to perform a vaginoplasty on her. Now that she had been irreparably maimed in the eyes of mayhem law, there was no longer any legal impediment to her obtaining further sex change surgery. They referred her to a Dr. Betty Steiner at the Clark Institute, The Clark, named after Canada's foremost eugenicist, had recently begun talks to open a gender identity clinic in the style of those recently funded through Reed Erickson's EEF in the United States. The Clark is now known as the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, or CAMH. And you may have seen them in the news recently as, after many years, trans activists have finally dealt a death blow to their horrific reparative therapy practices with trans youth under the hands of all-around villain Dr. Kenneth Zucker. But at the time, Dr. Steiner was mostly looking open-mindedly to educate herself about the emerging trans population. She later wrote, I wanted to do some clinical research, and as I knew nothing about transsexualism, it seemed an interesting field to explore. Diana was the perfect patient zero for the brand new Gender Identity Clinic. By Diana's own account, Dr. Steiner was a lifesaver and handled her case personally and with great care. So much so that Diana dedicated her autobiography to her. I, however, have some major bones to pick with Dr. Steiner. In the 1980s, she would be responsible for instituting the first trans prison policies in Canada, policies that froze trans people in their transitions at their point of entry into the prison system, and which called for housing trans people based on their genitalia rather than on their lived gender identity. The policy allowed only for the use of hormones and not for access to surgery. In a future episode, we'll cover the stories of two trans women who fought through the courts to receive surgery while incarcerated. She also said things to the press later, like this gloriously awful quote. We have to weed out the emotionally unstable and intellectually subnormal and spot the ones who are serious because there is no going back after. Of 600 patients who came to the Gender Identity Clinic by 1982, she bragged that only 75 had been approved. But back to Diana. Her treatment at the Clark's Gender Identity Clinic involved two weeks as an inpatient, as well as social workers interviewing her parents. They attempted to use a penile plethysmograph on her, and she left in disgust at the practice. For those who don't know, penile plethysmographs are devices connected to the genitals and used to measure the tumescence of the penis while the person is exposed to various kinds of pornographic images. In other words, it measures whether or not you get hard. They were originally referred to as the fruit machine, as they were invented to out gay men within the military and the RCMP. They were also used extensively with pedophiles and continue to be used with pedophiles. The Gender Identity Clinic would go on to use plethysmographs with many trans patients over the following decades But Diana was having none of that. On April 20th, 1970, having jumped through every hoop the gender identity clinic could dream up, Diana received surgery at Toronto General Hospital. In case you're interested, they used the Edgerton technique developed at Johns Hopkins. Zagria writes that Dr. Steiner gave Diana a kiss as she went under. For some reason, they kept Diana in hospital for three months following the surgery and then in September held a press conference with her to announce their success. This is where Dr. Leo Wolman comes back in. He flew up for the press conference and made all kinds of quack claims, even saying that uterus transplants would be possible within 10 years a claim he would repeat throughout his time hogging the transsexual medical spotlight from 1970 to 1980. As we now know, by 2016, we still do not have any successful uterus transplants in trans women. Diana remained in the press for the next couple of years, touted as Canada's first sex change. But was she? That same year, another surgery was performed at McGill University here in Montreal, where I happened to be a student, and a third at Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia. The Star reports an even earlier surgery in Toronto in 1967. While she may not have been the first sex change, she was certainly the first Canadian transmedia sensation. While she was still in hospital recovering, Diana was approached by actress, journalist, and one-time conservative politician, Felicity Cochran. According to Cochran, she breezed by security at the hospital pretending to be Diana's best friend after having read about her surgery in the paper. Felicity wanted to score an exclusive for Chatelaine, Canada's premier women's lifestyle magazine. According to Cochrane, the reason for the three-month hospital stay was that the surgery had not been a total success, and several surgeries followed to fix the mistakes of doctors who had never before performed a vaginoplasty. As Cochrane began to interview Diana, the two realized that Diana's story was more than just an article. It was a book. Together, they wrote, Behold, I am a woman they agreed to split the profits. The book was published in 1972, throwing Diana back into the spotlight for a third time. You can snag copies of it online for a small but hefty sum, and I even once found one in a dusty used bookshop in Toronto, carefully wrapped in plastic to protect the delicate pulp paperback. It's here that we find Diana's story told in full for the first time and it's here, too, that discrepancies exist. Do the variously conflicting details owe to Diana or to Felicity massaging the story? We'll probably never know. The book claims that, at the time of publication, 1972, Diana is in her late 20s. But, as we already established, she may have been born as early as 1930, making her 42 years old at the time the book came out. She went on tour promoting the book after it was picked up by a New York publisher. The CBC, Canada's national broadcasting company, was looking to push boundaries in the early 1970s. Journalist Margot Lane was interested in bringing feminist topics to television audiences and filmed interviews for a show titled All About Women. On May 29th, 1972, she interviewed Diana about her life as a woman and a transsexual. She was just one of several controversial interviewees, along with others covering things like abortion and sexuality. The show was ultimately too hot for TV, and they never broadcast it. But, thank God for the CBC. They posted the archival footage of the interview on their website. You can find the link in the show notes, but here's a clip.
1: Diana, why did you want to become a woman? Marco, it goes back, of course,
0: many, many years ago. It's uh, a situation that I think really goes back to, to almost babyhood. I think possibly the best way in answering your questions is to say that Even from infancy, I think that there's a a forcible genderization placed upon us. Uh, Gender identity comes from the cradle. We all know about um, people coming to see the little boy and saying, Oh, gosh, doesn't he look like his father? Isn't he a big, bouncing little man? Or, Oh, isn't she cute and adorable? So basically, even from childhood... We have forced identity, which I think in itself is good, except in the area of situations such as mine, which is transsexualism. And after that, Diana felt free at last. She stepped away from public life. She had to put up with so much discrimination. She'd meet somebody, and they'd find out about it, and they would drop her like a hot cake, Cochrane explains with a star. She stopped appearing in public and swore to secrecy as to her whereabouts. In the 1980s, she married, took on her husband's name, and moved to a small city in Ontario. She was happily married for many years and then widowed. The star describes her, quote, Diana eventually went gray but still wore a red wig. She kept up with fashions and loved a good pantsuit. Eventually, Diana and Cochrane lost touch. Cochrane learned recently that Diana passed away in 2014. Dr. Leo Wolman continued to be a quack in the transmedia. Here's a clip from a notorious film he took part in called Let Me Die a Woman, which you can watch in full on YouTube. It's a serious trip.
2: Several transsexuals of both genders are assembled here to discuss their mutual problems, both pre- and post-operative. Some have come from cities hundreds of miles away because they are unable to achieve their objectives in medical centers in their home cities. The reason for this is the lack of facilities for training physicians in this particular area of medicine. Now, this is Steve, a male transsexual who has not had the operation and is working as an automobile mechanic in order to accumulate sufficient money for the sex change operation. This is a female who wishes to become a male and is dressed as a male in order to maintain her job as the manager of a supermarket. We have here a 55-year-old diabetic who also has other illnesses and yet firmly believes that age makes no difference as far as a sex change is concerned. I see you've become a blonde. You look very pretty. But you weren't at our last group session, Debbie. Is everything all right?
1: No, nothing is all right. I'm so depressed, so miserable.
2: We all feel that way sometimes. Perhaps if you talked about it, we might be able to help.
1: There's no sense in talking about it. Nothing can help.
2: Come now, you know our rules. Don't be a defeatist. Don't be depressed. Let's see if we can solve the problem by discussing it, shall we?
1: I told you about Jim. I met him at a party about three months ago. We've been dating pretty regularly. And, well, I love him very much. Jim says he never knew he could care for anyone as much as he loves me.
2: Does he know about you?
1: Oh, no. I'm afraid to tell him. He'll leave me. I can't take that chance.
2: You have the body of a woman. You feel like a woman, don't you?
1: I always felt like a woman, even when I had a penis. Don't be a fool. Don't tell him. You'll never know the difference. There's always the chance that someone will tell him and he'll leave you because you weren't honest with him.
2: I can understand your dilemma, but you know, Rosalind is right. If Jim cares for you as much as you say he does, he wouldn't leave you. If he finds out from someone else, he'll feel that he cannot trust you, that you had not been honest with him. Then he no doubt would leave you. Then too, if you keep your secret, you'll always be worried. If he frowns at you, or is angry and irritated, you'll think he knows. You'll be constantly on edge, and this can only lead to unhappiness. Please come to our next group session. No matter what you decide to do, we all want to know about it.
0: What are we to make of all the discrepancies in Diana's story? As I researched her life, I came to wonder how much of her early story was based on fact. The details don't add up for her accessing medical treatment through Dr. Chalice, and one wonders why the details about Dr. Cowell were added. Was she trying to legitimize herself for the gender identity clinic, or later for the media? it seems to me that trans people throughout the 20th century often had to fabricate significant portions of their stories in order to be taken seriously by medical gatekeepers and the often vicious press. In Diana's story, we can learn a lot about the destructive power of media visibility. Her life was repeatedly ruined by the press. And even when she attempted to gain her own control over it by publishing a memoir, she still faced discrimination as a result. But thankfully, in the pre-internet era, she managed to escape the public eye and lived what appears to have been a very happy life. Though she may not have been Canada's first transsexual, as the media and her own autobiography claimed, she is certainly the first public transsexual in Canada. And for this, I salute her. Thank you for listening to this episode of One From The Vaults, the podcast that brings you all the dirt, gossip, and glamour from trans history. I'm your host Morgan M. Page. One From The Vaults is written, recorded, and produced by me, Morgan M. Page. It is recorded in Montreal, Quebec, on the traditional territories of the Algonquin and Haudenosaunee. Check out the show notes for the sources I used in putting together this episode. If you like the show, please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, or wherever else these podcasts get put up. You can rate and review us on iTunes and tweet at me, at Morgan M. Page, on Twitter. Join us next time for another story from our trans ancestors. Good night.